This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. As well as, uh, of course, the Ontario uh, government uh, answering questions about the budget. They're also answering questions about spending, uh, well, at least 120k on a giant duck as part of a Canada 150 celebration. Uh, the Liberal government says it will act as a tourist attraction for people wait, uh, wanting to take pictures with it. And uh, we'll be, you know, all part of the great uh, Canada 150 thing. Are people being uh, too whiny about this? After all, it is a birthday party. Or could we, uh, you know, spend, have more fun with that kind of money rather than a blow-up duck? Uh, most say it's a waste of money uh, as far as uh, those on the right. Christine Van Gein, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, Ontario Director, is with us now. Christine, come on. What's the problem here? We're trying to have a little fun. Are you, uh, like, are you sour grapes here? What's the deal? Well, it's not sour grapes, but first of all, I don't know what on earth a giant inflatable rubber duck has to do with Canada or Ontario, unless I guess it represents the migration habits of ducks and Ontario businesses leaving south for, for better, <laughs> better fiscal climate. Maybe that's but, its height in meters. Maybe it's 150 meters tall. Is it really that big? Uh, it weighs about 30,000 pounds. That's what I read. But um, what really stinks about this duck is, is the cost. It's a $121,000 grant from the provincial government. And, you know, when we're in a climate where most fam- a lot of families can't afford their electricity bills, when um, businesses are leaving south and leaving this province because they can't afford to do business here, um, the idea of spending that much money on something so frivolous that has no connection to Ontario, I mean, this is, this is one of those things that becomes a symbolic issue. It's symbolic of the way this government manages our money, and it's... it's it's ducking stupid, is what I say. <laughs> what, uh, to you, what do you say to those that say, uh, you know, come on, you're making something out of nothing here. Uh, should we not be celebrating 150? Are you saying that we shouldn't be spending any money on this on this birthday, on this occasion? No, of course, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that at all. But what, what on earth does a giant rubber duck that's made in America and ripped off from a Dutch artist have to do with Ontario's um, and Canada's 150th anniversary. It doesn't have anything to do with it. And it's just kind of this this self-serving and frivolous use of money that this government has has had a huge long record of, of wasting our money. It just it kind of symbolizes how out of touch the government is. And, you know, people love fireworks. People love um, celebrating things like Canada Day. But when you're when you're doing something like this, a giant inflatable rubber duck, it's so silly, it's so ridiculous, it's so absurd. When people are really struggling in this province, that that's how you're going to choose to spend taxpayers' hard-earned money, it's really disrespectful, and it uh, has no connection to Ontario. I completely understand uh, where you're coming from, Christine, but, you know, what if they blew it all on fireworks? Would that make it any different? Well, I mean, I think fireworks people understand a lot better than um, than something like this. This is, you know, it's it's silly. It's ridiculous. You don't think they're all going to go ooh and ah uh, over a duck? <laughs> well, I mean, it's not even it's not even an Ontario duck, right? Like this is a, a duck that was uh, knock a knockoff of a Dutch artist. It was made in the U.S. Um, and then we're paying one hundred and thirty thousand dollars for it to be blown up and. And toured around the Ontario or the Toronto uh, Red Pass Harbor. So, how did we get with the duck? What is the story? What's the backstory here? I I actually have no idea, and it's a good question. And I think um, I'm going to be filing some freedom of information requests to see how they reached the decision 
that they would be bringing in this giant rubber duck. I just think uh, it has it has no connection to our heritage, no connection to our history. It's not even made in Canada. It's it's something that symbolizes how little respect this government has for our money, and it this the the cost of it, one hundred thirty thousand dollars. Or I guess it's a hundred and twenty-one thousand dollar grant, but the duck itself costs two hundred thousand dollars to bring. The cost of it—it's sort of when when governments are willing to spend that amount of money on something so absurd, it shows you how we got ourselves into this fiscal hole with nine consecutive deficits in in this province. When when governments see money that that they can spend that way, it, it explains a lot. Uh, can you really blame the province for this? And I'm just playing devil's advocate here, Christine. Can you blame the province for this? This was all part of uh, the Red Path Waterfront Festival. A grant was given for Canada Day celebrations. And then, you know, I'm guessing they chose to spend it on the duck rather than, than the Ontario government. Um, yeah, but I think that when when you have so much money, when you have given them a grant like this, and they're like, okay, I guess we have to use the money, so... What can we spend it on? And when you're when you're giving grants like that, you should have some kind of um, strings attached to them, and and say that you can't just spend money on on things that are ludicrous, things that make no sense, things that are, are frankly disrespectful of of the money that we all work hard to uh, to earn and and pay our taxes with. So you don't think they did due diligence on the duck? Um, I, I have no idea if they did due diligence on the duck, but there is, um, there is, you know, this is this is an American-made duck. It's not even the original piece of artwork that this Dutch artist made. It's a it's a knockoff. Where, ba- where we basically we bought the fake duck. <laughs> what if it was a mallard duck, Christine? Would that change your mind? You know, if it was a loon or if it was um, a Canada goose or something that had some kind of connection to Ontario, um, it might make more sense that I just don't understand the connection of a, a rubber, a yellow rubber ducky to Ontario. There isn't one. It's, maybe just, they, it's just wasting money. Maybe the Canada goose was booked. Maybe they, the, the only thing they had access to was this duck. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea how they reached the conclusion that they did, but I think, you know, fireworks would have been a, a more uh, normal use of, of a grant like Let that. me ask you this. What if the duck attracts people, thus attracting business and tourism and such? I mean, can you look at it that way? Um, I think that that's the argument that the government's been making, and uh, I think that it's kind of a, a, you know, that's a fair argument that it's it's there to bring tourists, but lots of things bring tourists dollars to festivals and it doesn't have to be so ludicrous it doesn't have to be so unconnected to our to our history what uh are your thoughts uh i'm going to switch gears with you here christine i can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on a report from uh the ontario budget watchdog that says that although the the budget has been balanced that uh it's going the deficit's going to steadily grow beyond that and uh conservatives are saying that uh the books have been fudged here what are your thoughts yeah, I mean, when you when you saw the the budget on budget day, it was pretty obvious that um, tremendous amount of money is still being added in debt. That um, their projections were for um, no no surpluses in the future years. They could, they they just predicted a total balance of zero for every year going forward. I mean, in the run up to an election, it's pretty typical for governments to mess around with their books. Uh, I'm not surprised by the report today. And uh, it's just it's a, what we've been saying all along that this government isn't really honest with uh, with their numbers. 
Christine Van Gein has been with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Ontario Director. Christine, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, as uh, we were mentioning with Christine, a report from the Budget Watchdog says that although the the budget has balance or the uh, the uh, the budget is balanced for this year, the deficit is 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 expected to grow steadily beyond then, and uh, could be as much as six point five billion by twenty twenty two. To talk more about all of this, Todd Smith is with his PC MPP for Prince Edward Hastings and is on the line with us now. Hello, Todd. How are you today? Hey, Scott. Very well. You? You? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, clearly, you guys have dug down a little deeper into this. What have you found? Well, you know, uh, we found that the budget watchdog, uh, Stephen LeClaire, the financial accountability officer, who is that independent oversight at the legislature, has confirmed what Patrick Brown, our leader, has been saying since the budget was tabled, that the budget actually wasn't balanced. It was a, it was a fudged budget. Uh, Patrick was saying it was $5 billion uh, in the red, and uh, the accountability officer said today it was actually $5.9 billion, so it's a little worse than we had projected back on budget day. So uh, at the end of the day, doesn't, you know, uh, governments will say that everybody does this uh, prior to the election to try to make things look better than what they are. Your response to that? Uh, this is clearly the Liberals cooking the books and, and trying to get ready for the next election by saying that uh, they balance the budget. I mean, I think it's irritating for people who are listening to your show, not because of anything you're doing, Scott, but because they're hearing these advertisements that are running saying from Wawa to Petawawa and Owen Sound to Perry Sound, we've balanced the budget, so now we can spend billions of dollars more of your money. Uh, that's not the case, and the Financial Accountability Officer has said so. It, so it should be irritating to everybody who hears those uh, day after day, knowing that the government has gone on a spending spree that's actually going to cause the debt uh, to rise by $76 billion over the next five years. That's another number the budget watchdog came out with today. So that should be concerning for everybody because it means there's a hidden agenda down the road here from the Liberals. Uh, they're going to have to recoup uh, that money somehow, some way. And is it going to be through frontline service cuts or is it going to be through another tax increase? Do you think this is resonating with Ontarians? I think so. I certainly, if you look at the polling numbers, they don't trust uh, this premier and they don't trust the Liberal Party of Ontario anymore. Kathleen Wynne is doing very, very poorly. People just don't trust her anymore. And whether it's this issue or the um, unfair hydro plan that Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals have put out, they're not buying it. They realize that it's very, very short-term um, relief but long-term pain down the road, and that's what uh, their unfair hydro plan is doing as well, creating another 96 potentially billion dollars in new debt and Ontario power generation that doesn't show up on the government's books. And so the other independent officer of the legislature, the Auditor General, has said she's not going to be able to sign off on this budget because of some of the magic beans that Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals and Charles Sousa, the, the Finance Minister, have used to create an illusion that they've balanced the budget when clearly, uh, you know, the Auditor General and the Financial Accountability Officer have said this is anything but a balanced budget. Uh, moving forward, especially with things like the electricity file, where what can the next government, whether it's your party or the other opposition party, what to, what can they do with this moving forward? How do you untangle this? 
stop the madness, uh, really start to take it seriously. Uh, the, the fair hydro bill, as the Liberals are calling it, it's the unfair hydro bill, really, because it just heaps all of that debt onto future electricity customers uh, without actually dealing with the problem as to why electricity prices continue to skyrocket out of control. We had the bill at committee last week, and it was made very clear by energy experts who appeared before the committee that the government just didn't want to do the hard work. They wanted to make the simple solution to try and make the electricity issue go away, and they're not willing to go in there and renegotiate contracts or cancel contracts that have uh, a mechanism where they can be cancelled without a steep penalty to Ontario uh, taxpayers. They're just not willing to do those those things that are necessary to get us back to a balanced budget or to get our electricity bills under control. Uh, you spoke earlier of ads that uh, were airing. Uh, these obviously seem to be in certain areas targeting voters uh, and as well reports coming out earlier this this week that uh, had rules not been changed by the Liberal government, this would not be allowed. Will that be changed under your government if they if or under your party rather uh, if you form government? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's offensive to those who are listening to the radio when they hear those things, especially when they know the facts that that you know they're not balanced the budget is not balanced it's it's uh, it's a waste of taxpayer dollars it provides no service to anyone except for Kathleen Wynne and the liberal party um to pat themselves on the back and create the illusion that they've done a good job. Um, the next worst thing that they're actually doing, the Liberals, is they're forcing our electricity distributors to change the envelopes that your electricity bill comes in, to put a big red arrow on the front, pointing down, saying 25% off, when that's not the case either. And they've uh, committed um, our electricity distribution companies to do that right up until July of 2018. I mean, if that's not cynical, I don't know what is. What happens in June of 2018? Well, of course, it's the provincial election. So they're trying to make electricity customers and our distribution companies pay for liberal advertising over the next year leading up to the election. It's just sickening. Surprised to see so much of this. Uh, A while ago, it was a high-speed rail line, uh, minimum wage now, uh, and we're still a year out. What's what's this going to be like six, eight months from now? Yeah, it's kind of scary, isn't it, really, when you're seeing the money that's going out the door the way it is, and and the financial accountability officer today projecting the debt is going to rise by $76 billion over the next five years. But keep in mind, this is a desperate, desperate liberal party and a desperate premier right now, who I think is going to throw everything they possibly can out the door. So it could cost us billions of dollars more over the next year, depending on what the pet project is that the liberals think they might be able to pick up a seat with. And uh, I think it should be alarming for all Ontarians, those in the Hamilton area and right across the province, uh, when they see the Liberals uh, just throwing everything out the door, basically handing over the keys to the vault to uh, whoever they, uh, they, they, they believe uh, might give them a vote. Todd Smith has been with us, PC MPP for Prince Edward Hastings. Todd, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Carla Homolka, who you may remember along with Paul Bernardo, were responsible for the deaths of young teens Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. These, of course, were cases that uh, gripped this area uh, when they happened years ago. Uh, Carla, of course, uh, struck a deal, uh, served her 12 years, and uh, I guess is out to uh, now and, and can do as she pleases, as any other citizen uh, has and does. 
she's been seen at a Montreal private school that her kids attend, even volunteering. Uh, Quebec law stipulates that before anyone can have regular contact with kids in schools, they must have a criminal background check. Uh, if there is nothing that can be done as far as this uh, time served, uh, what about the future and moving forward? Joining us now is lawyer for the Mahaffey and French families who, of course, uh, represented them and endured all of this uh, through this lengthy trial. Timothy Danson is with us now. Hello, Tim. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Clarify uh, this for us. The law says she has ter- served her time. She can do whatever she, she pleases like any other Canadian citizen. Well, I take a different view on that. Um, yes, she served her time, but uh, on the facts of her case, she got away with murder. Uh, Carla Homolka should have been in the prisoner's box with Paul Bernardo, and she should be serving a life sentence uh, like Paul Bernardo. And then after serving 25 years, she'd be eligible for parole, and then she could be determined for release in those circumstances. That's not what we have here. She was able to negotiate a plea resolution um, uh, because at the time of the plea resolution, the videotapes were not in existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we didn't like the plea resolution, but we went o- along with it because it was clear that uh, there was going to be more victims. And uh, uh, But very, very strict uh, conditions were put on, on the plea resolution. And if she violated or lied at all in any aspect of it, the deal was off. And that's precisely what she did, and she got let off again by the prosecution because they felt they needed her to testify when they didn't because they had the videotape. So when people say that she served her time, uh, I see it very differently. She hasn't served her time. That's the problem. She got away with murder. Uh, I believe that uh, Carla Homolka is, uh, is a psychopath. There's no cure for psychopathy. Uh, when we were in Joliet, Quebec in 2005, uh, just before her release when we were uh, trying to impose um, uh, post-sentence conditions on her, which we were able to do, but it was reversed on appeal. Um, people at the time may recall that she chose to stare me down at that time. Uh, it was a shocking experience, but what I do recall about it is um, that the same look that was on her face uh, just before her release, 12 years after serving time in a penitentiary, the same emptiness and evilness that was on her face then is exactly the look that you see in the videotapes. So in my view, she hadn't changed at all and reaffirms my view that she got away with uh, murder. I think the more vexing question for me and for the families is that um, drawing a distinction between Carla Homoka, and I do believe the dangers that she represents if uh, certain circumstances uh, all came together at the same time, uh, and her children, because her children truly are innocent, and they have the right to a normal, happy life and a good education. So, um, you know, we, one could have a philosophical debate another time as to whether if she was not so selfish and self-centered that maybe she shouldn't have had children. Hmm. Uh, but she has, and, and you know, they're, they're, they're entitled to be free and clear of what she did. They're not responsible. But having said that, if I were a parent at that school, I would want to know that she was there, and I would, uh, uh, would, would not at all accept that my children were being supervised and or in close proximity to Carla Homoka. Uh, what is, how can that happen? I mean, again, you want to volunteer at your kid's school. You have to jump through hoops to be able to do this. So how is she able to do this without some sort of background check? Not that she would need one. Everybody knows who she is and what she's done. What, what, what's happening here? How is this allowed to happen? Well, it looks like, and I only know from media reports, uh, that uh, the school knows exactly who she is um, because her kids go there. 
uh, and obviously deemed her not to be uh, a threat to the other children because they claim that she's never alone with children. And uh, so, you know, it's a private school. Uh, they're, you know, uh, you know, they were free to make this decision. And Carla Homoka, as a matter of law, has served her time. Uh, she has served her punishment that we gave her, uh, and she has no limitations or restrictions. So in that sense, um, there's certainly no legal uh, prohibition against that. And uh, whether there was a, a background check or not, it's, it's academic in this case because they know who she is. So I think the bigger issue is for the, um, is for the parents uh, uh, at the school, and they certainly have a right to know and they certainly have a right to object. Uh, you mentioned that the school said there, she's not alone with the kids and what have you. I, I can understand that, but she's certainly allowed to build relationships with them that could perhaps harm them in the future off school grounds. No, I mean, I think that's that's really uh, a fair comment. And, um, uh, you know, this, this, this is where you, you create the problems. I mean, again, you know, this, this, this kind of dichotomy on the one hand that the children are innocent and they have a right to a normal life, but they have a mother who is a... Who is a is who's a murderer and uh, and and you know I mean for someone who who has seen the videotapes as much as I have unfortunately I know exactly what she did and she participated with Paul Bernardo in unspeakable crimes against uh, Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French that ended in their death um, you know yet as the kids grow up uh, you know they have a right to have friends you want them to have friends you want them to have a normal life you you hope they don't end up like their mother. Um, you know, so if you were the, the parents of, of, of those kids, uh, you know, what do you do, you know, if you even know who she is? So it's, um, I, I feel sorry for the kids is what I'm saying. Hmm. You talked about going to that parole hearing and her staring you down and the look that you saw in her eyes and how that was the same look she had on her face in those tapes. That, that, that must resonate with everyone who hears that story. Um, how many people saw those tapes? Who saw those? First of all, it was it was uh, it was um, not a parole hearing. It was uh, what we call an eight ten hearing under the criminal code to uh, impose post sentence conditions. But in terms of who has seen the videos, um, uh, because you you raised an interesting point when she was staring me down, uh, and no words were spoken because it was during the course of the proceedings. It was as if she was because at that hearing, the only two people in the courtroom who had seen the videotapes was her and me. And um, and it was as if she was saying, you know, you know, you're the only one other than myself that knows what I did, and it was almost like a, mo- a mocking look that 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 she was going to get away with this. Um, but you, you really had to be there. But in terms of who saw the videos, it's uh, clearly uh, uh, you know the the you know the judge, the defense lawyers, um, uh, the jury, unfortunately. Um, and some members of the media did see it during the the the. Um, uh, the battle we had when when uh, I was trying to prohibit media access to those tapes, which fortunately we were successful with. Um, so not a lot of people have seen them, and of course the police officers, the investigating police officers, uh, have seen them. Um, I I I I don't understand why anybody would want to see them, other than of course for the purpose that you and 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 law enforcement and such. Um, that being said, Tim. You saw that look on her face. You saw the same look in those horrific videos. How do you get that point across without showing someone the picture of her in that video? Not necessarily the poor victims, but just 
you know, I guess my point is, um, what about if you had stood up at that time and said, see that look on her face? That's the look I saw in the video. Does that well, hold residence? Can you do that? Yeah, well, interesting. Um, fortunately, the actual videotapes, uh, we, uh, after Paul Bernardo's leave application to the Supreme Court of Canada was denied, um, I brought uh, a successful application to have the videotapes and the autopsy pictures and the crime scene pictures and the likes all destroyed. Uh, which the, so they have been, and I can tell you at the moment that they were destroyed, if you were there with the families, and we were all there, um, it was as if we were purging evil, and the and, and that the families were finally that the girls were finally free, and their families were finally free, that they could never be violated again. So, I know I faced a lot of criticism at the time for having them destroyed. They will not, in the least, affect uh, the parole issues for Bernardo, which, by the way, we're now preparing for because there's a tentative hearing in August. Um, but um, during the 810 proceeding, it was between the prosecutor and, and Homolka's lawyer. So I was there, but I wasn't able to uh, uh, make um, submissions other than working with the prosecution. But I can tell you, uh, it was an issue that I brought to the attentions of, of the Crown, but, but I wasn't a witness, so it's just something that I experienced. And other members of the media who were in the courtroom saw it. I mean, it was quite something. But they wouldn't be able to have the same response as I did because I hadn't seen the videotapes. But uh, it's, 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 it, it just reinforces my view, once a psychopath, always a psychopath. She had no remorse. I don't believe she has now. Um, and, uh, and I do believe that she represents a, a threat to public safety. And it's, uh, it, 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 it appalls me that uh, she's able to carry on a normal life when uh, my clients, and certainly uh, uh, Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey, can't uh, enjoy the life that she's now experiencing. Enjoying. Some have said that uh, she was, and she said, coerced, uh, pressured into what have you. Again, you've seen this; these horrific uh, images. Is there any doubt in your mind that she was as responsible for this as Paul Bernardo? Um, I would say that uh, she was completely uh, uh, complicit and involved. Uh, to the question about who's worse between Bernardo and Homolka, uh, I've always answered it. It's like the difference between evil and extreme evil. I mean, there's a point where it just doesn't matter. Um, she was fully engaged. I don't buy the argument at all. Um, uh, the whole battered woman uh, syndrome uh, and all the empirical evidence with respect to it uh, established that women who are battered um, strike out against the people who are doing the battering. They don't strike out against innocent third-party children like Homolka did. So I just don't, I don't buy it at all. And, um, and I think that was all a pretext uh, for uh, justifying uh, her actions. Uh, this is someone who also participated in the death of her sister, serving her sister up as a virgin to Paul Bernardo as a birthday gift. Um, and, and, and after uh, her sister died, um, uh, uh, with, with because of the asphyxiation of the way she, they, they had done it, um, she did it again. This is, people may forget there was another victim, and we only identify her as Jane Doe, and mm-hmm. I was Jane Doe's counsel as well. And 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 the sexual assault on Jane Doe took place exactly the same way as the sexual assault on uh, her sister. The same method, the same you know drug. Uh, Jane Doe lived, but um, th- th- this is so far beyond normal. To blame this on pressure from uh, Bernardo is, is nonsense. This is a very sick individual, and, uh, and it bothers me that uh, she got away with murder. Uh, 
does Homolka's family have contact with her? Does she have? Is she have any contact with the rest of her family? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I assume there's there's some contact. Uh, I felt better when she was in some Caribbean island and out of Canada. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it uh, you know it, it, it bothers me that she's here. Um, uh, but um, explain that we've talked about this before because you would think if you, as you say, got away with murder, you'd stay the hell out of Dodge. So, and is that part of that psychopathy that she toys with the victims? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a really good question that you ask. Uh, you would think that, um, uh, I mean, I don't know the nature of what her, her, her husband's employment is because they were living in the Caribbean for a while. Um, uh, her husband is the sister of her, of her Montreal lawyer. Um, and, um, you know, maybe... Maybe he, his job t- brings him back here, and that's why they're here. I, I don't know the answer to it, but uh, I agree with you. You would think that you'd want to keep your 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 head low and stay out of dodge, and um, you know. And, and I suppose that she would prefer that that the media not not find her or track her down. But uh, uh, you know, you can't do what she did and think that uh, uh, there's not going to be a public interest and a public fear. Uh, in the jurisdictions where she resides. Does Bernardo have contact with anybody in in uh, prison? Uh, do these two ever, have they ever talked to each other since? Yeah, I, I wouldn't know that. Um, I wouldn't know if they were, you know, he's entitled to, to, to speak with people. There's some, you know, I don't know the details of, of all of that. Um, as I say, we do have a parole hearing coming up, and, and uh, uh, you know, the, the, um, the timing of all this is a bit ironic in the sense that uh, uh, you know, I'm working with the families to prepare um, the victim impact statements. Uh, there's some important legal issues that I'm, I'm addressing now, which uh, um, we'll see how they how they pan out. In the sense that while he's applying for parole and he's eligible for parole, and as I said, he will not get it, uh, but we're not taking anything for granted, and we'll be vigilant in our response. And you did a lot of that work uh, during the trial as well to preserve this evidence, correct? Oh yeah, no. I mean, one one of the things that that, that actually I did was uh, immediately following the trial, uh, in anticipation for 25 years down the road. It's hard to believe a quarter wow. of a century goes by, but I actually put a whole everything together at the time and gave it to the parole board and corrections, so that you know, 25 years later, we weren't running around wondering where all this stuff was. Um, but the point that I was making is that let's not forget he was also designated a dangerous offender. Mm-hmm. And I think, as a matter of principle and as a matter of law, that before he is even considered by the parole board, by by measurement of the ordinary standards of of parole eligibility, that we deal with the uh, dangerous offender uh, designation status, which is a much much higher threshold. And my view is that Paul Bernardo first would have to bring forward compelling. Uh, medical evidence to displace the uh, dangerous offender designation before we even consider parole. Um, those of a, who have a different view to mine, which is actually is, is the corrections candidate and the parole board at the moment, um, they say, well, look at Tim, the parole board is, 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 has jurisdiction to consider both of those issues, so we'll deal with them at the same time. I think it should be bifurcated. I, I don't buy that. I think it's the dangerous offender designation is a very specific and rare designation reflecting uh, a high level of uh, psychopathy and dangerousness. And I just think that needs to be addressed fully before we even look at normal parole. Uh, when is the parole hearing again? Well, um, it's, I think it's tentatively you know, targeted for August, end of August, uh, uh, but we also, it was also targeted previously in March and it didn't take place. So I'm not sure if it'll actually take place in August. I'm certainly preparing for it. Why uh, would it be delayed? Why was it delayed for March? 
Um, well, you know, we're not entitled to that information. Bernardo himself made that decision, and uh, and so I speculate, and I and I emphasize, I'm truly speculating. But it may be that um, uh, in order for him to get any kind of day parole, he needs to get his uh, case management team on side. Uh, and and if he doesn't have them on side, there's no point doing it. So, right. you know, they may be saying to him, look, you've got to do all these following other things before we're prepared to even consider it. And that's my guess, but, but I could be wrong. So, Tim, how are these families doing? You know, it's uh, it, it's at, at the moment. You know that you know when 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 I had to raise the issue of uh, the, the time has now come that we got to do victim impact statements and prepare for the parole hearing. Um, uh, I don't know how to describe it because you can feel um, the pain and the despair, you know, in their voices. That like it's as if it was just yesterday. I mean, they, they understand. They're very practical and realistic. They understand that the law is written for everybody and and not for one individual and they get it that Paul Bernardo is eligible for parole but it doesn't make it any easier that a person who is uh, uh committed the unspeakable uh, brutal crimes that he did against their children um uh could even you know think of of of, of applying for parole but I've reminded them I said look at this is a guy who's you know, uh, in in protective custody, probably in a cell. You know, 23 of 24 hours a day, and uh, he's got nothing better to do. And so this is entertainment for him, and he'll like the attention. Mm-hmm. And that's what psycho- psychopaths do. And um, so it's very, very tough. It's very, very difficult. Um, but they will stand shoulder to shoulder with their daughters, and they'll be there at the parole hearing, and they'll do what they can to. Uh, uh, have their their daughter's voices heard at those parole hearings. It obviously must be painful for them to hear these stories about Carla and what she's doing in Montreal. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you ever get used to it. I mean, Doug, you know, was saying that nothing surprises them anymore because you know they're they're you know this is not the first time a story like this has come up with respect to Carla Homolka. Uh, but it's really really tough when you see that uh, you know she's able to enjoy a, a lifestyle. Uh, uh, that uh, they can, that she stole from them and she stole from their daughters, and it just doesn't seem that uh, justice was served in this case. As you said, it's been 25 years. Does this case still impact the public the way it did? I mean, it's, it, you know, you remember back to those times, it's hard to believe it's been that long. Yeah, I, you know, I, I mean, you'd be a better judge than me, than, uh, you know, in terms of the, you know, the impact on the public. It certainly seems that... Um, uh, that uh, the, that the nature of these particular crimes were so outrageous and so brutal that uh, it's kind of part of the psychic of the Canadian people in terms of the criminal justice system. Uh, so I think certainly people who were around at the time it absolutely resonates. Uh, but um, you know it's interesting when I speak to my own kids who are kind of grown up now and in their twenties and graduated from university that. Um, uh, that that their their uh, you know their friends know this story. So I mean, it it was either passed on by parents or they learned it in school. Um, so I do think it's one of those uh, uh, stories that will continue to resonate, uh, even as uh, those of us who were uh, there at the time are, are getting older. I like to think not too old, hmm. but um, um, and it's one of the reasons why I was so committed to uh, having the videotapes destroyed um, because there is a point where um, we move on in time and I'm not around and the families aren't around and the videotapes could potentially be seen more as archival or historical and and somehow get out and uh, 
And so it was really important to us to have all of that evidence uh, destroyed. And um, it allows us to sleep a little better at nighttime, knowing that the girls will no longer be violated by anyone having access to those uh, horrific videotapes. When you were involved with this, when you started being involved with this case uh, 25 years ago, did you have any idea the impact it would have on the Canadian psyche and, and, and the continuous work that you would be doing on it? Not at the time. Um, I think that shifted significantly when the videotapes were found. And uh, you'll recall that the uh, the media uh, at large uh, took a very aggressive position that uh, the freedom of the press, free speech rights, entitled them to have access to those videotapes. And then we launched a very significant uh, constitutional challenge in response. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I have to tell you, it was probably one of the biggest errors in judgment that I ever made because uh, when the videotapes were found and there was discussion that the media might you know, try to get access to them, I told the families that there was no way that the media would do that, you know, that the rule isn't for access to, is not absolute and I, the media wouldn't do it and I was dead wrong and as you recall, it was significant uh, battle with the media and uh, you know, fortunately we were successful but um, it then really resonated to me that this was uh, uh, going to be unlike any other case we saw uh, in Canadian judicial history. And you'll recall it was also happening at the time of uh, the O.J. Simpson case. So right. it was pretty sensational at the uh, you know, at the time. Tim Danson has been with us, lawyer for the families of Leslie Mahaffey and Christian, uh, Kristen French, who, of course, 25 years later uh, have to attend uh, hearings on uh, Paul Bernardo and his parole. At, this after Carla Homolka, of course, seen in Montreal uh, with her kids at her kids' school. Uh, Tim, thank you very much for the time, as always, and please pass our support on to the uh, Mahaffey and French families. Good luck. Thank you very much. They'll appreciate that. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, let's switch gears and uh, veer left. Uh, not politically, but direction-wise, to the uh, West Coast, or what, which some have referred to as the left coast, which is even more left now. Uh, Christy Clark will recla- uh, recall the B.C. legislature to have a formal confidence vote after the NDP and the Green Party uh, struck a power-sharing agreement to lead the House. Uh, Clark has indicated she will not resign uh, should she lose the vote, but would rather act as leader of the official opposition. Where do we go from here? Let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Now, as a conservative... What do you think, sitting in Ontario, looking to the West and seeing a left, I'm going to create a new term here, and an even lefter party forming government? Well, I mean, obviously there's nothing for me to be happy about. I'm I'm obviously very displeased that it's been done. I mean, what happened is within the realms of democracy. I mean, the B.C. NDP and the B.C. Greens combined had a total of 44 seats in the legislature, or what will be the next legislature, which basically is 41 NDP, 3 Greens. The Liberals, in the end, under Premier Christy Clark, ended up with 43 seats, or a total of one behind the combined total of the NDP and Greens. So within the system that we have, and the democracy that we have in this country, 
parties are allowed to combine in a minority government situation and try to, quote-unquote, topple the other party or the party that either won the election, got the most votes, or was the sitting government. So what is happening here is, you know, quite within the the realm of politics. This is unfortunately the way things happen from time to time. I don't think it's necessarily the best way to do things because under the first past the post system, you would think that the you know that the party that won would at least get a period of time to try to form a minority government, try to hang on for a period of time and survive. I mean that's what happened with Stephen Harper, as people may recall. Two of his three governments were both minority governments, the 06 and the 08, and they were allowed to operate and run in coalition with working out deals with the other opposition parties and trying to create legislation and policies that made sense for the country. Anyway, look, in this case, as a conservative, I sort of sensed this might happen when there was one last writing in what's called Courtney Comics. In the end, it stayed with the NDP. It was obviously very tempting for the B.C. Greens to play kingmaker in this role, and they've decided to do it. They put their lot with the NDP. And for most small-c conservatives and for a lot of people who voted for the Liberal Party in B.C., which tends to be right-leaning overall, it's a frustrating period of time. But, again, that's the way democracy works sometimes. What does this do for the Green Party, who, after their introduction, really have been rudderless? I mean, simply because most of the other parties have just incorporated a Green angle to them all. So, uh, and for the most part, after the Greens were introduced, they pretty much stayed exactly where they are. What does this do for the party now having control? A bit more control. Yeah, fair enough. And I would say yes and no on the green issue. It it is true that the other parties have adapted a green agenda. I agree with you. And there was a green agenda long before the Green Party of Canada and the provincial green parties in Canada became more successful on an electoral basis. But provincially, there have been greens who have sat in various provinces, including B.C., Nova Scotia, and others. And for that reason, the party is still kind of strong enough to uh, continue forward and still has an agenda where it can survive on its own. It's really federally where it's been overwhelmed. But I agree with you in the sense that where did the greens go? I think the greens are going to relish the opportunity to be a kingmaker in this one position. Andrew Weaver, its leader, who has a very strong academic background and speaks rather well, by and large, when you actually see him on a podium, even though that there will not be a formal coalition between the, uh, the B.C. Greens and the B.C. NDP, it's just going to be a working coalition, which means that there will be no Green Party members in the NDP cabinet, and they'll just basically prop them up and support them on issues of mutual accordance or mutual interest. It's a still an incredible kind of moment for the Green Party, and if you believe that the provincial outfits can obviously help the federal outfit, that being Elizabeth May and the federal Green Party, I'm sure she's hoping that Andrew Weaver and the B.C. Greens, who she's had her moments of agreement and disagreement with, I'm sure she's hoping that this is actually a very successful coalition because that could rub off of the federal party and other provincial Green Parties as well. So for a Green Party that, yes, has people are more interested in environmental issues than actually voting for a party that represents the environmental issues, this is a big moment where they can sort of leapfrog into a completely different area of politics and then maybe eventually reach the levels of, say, the German Greens, for example, who have played parts of various coalition governments over the, over the years in Germany. 
Again, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the BC Greens are really right now in a position to become something more than just a fourth party. They really could have a chance to become, at least if nothing else, a second or third alternative for a lot of people who regularly wouldn't even consider voting for them. So where does this leave BC Premier Christy Clark? What, what options does she have at this point? Just well, a, is it just a matter of time before this government falls? Oh, without question. I mean, she's just going to play it out, and it's it's within her right to do so. She won the election, so she has the right to call back the legislature, as she's going to do, and she's going to test this confidence vote. So basically, she'll she'll set up a small cabinet, she'll come in, they'll start off the process, it'll just happen within the next few days or so, and what will happen is she will then introduce you know, a confidence motion, whether people are, you know, the the MLAs are confident that the Liberal government, quote-unquote, can govern this province. What will happen then, obviously, is she will be defeated unless, say, an NDP MLA or a Green MLA has a sort of a, a a change of heart or their conscience is bothering them based on the arrangement made by the two party leaders in opposition. And for that reason, what will happen is if the confidence motion is defeated, which it should, the lieutenant governor general is then able to, in B.C., come forward and offer the, shall we say, the next position of government or for the NDP and the Green Coalition to then take shape and form the next government. Now, it is true that historically you don't necessarily have to accept that type of arrangement. That would sort of go back to the whole King Bing affair of 1926, where unfortunately, you know, where parties try to sort of either take control in a minority situation if the party that won or the government in, in power doesn't have the confidence of the House. And if that doesn't succeed, you go back into another election. My guess is that in British Columbia, people just don't have the teeth or the interest in going back to an, the election so quickly and going back to the polls and back to the voting booths just after having gone through an election currently. So my guess is that they'll probably allow the NDP and the Greens to form the next government. Coalitions historically in this country, as we know, Scott, don't last more than, say, 12 to 18 months. That's pretty typical for most minority governments. There are some rare exceptions. Stephen Harper actually had a couple of rare exceptions, but it doesn't really happen all that often. And then the assumption will be for the B.C. Liberals, whether Christy Clark is still the opposition leader or whether she chooses to step down and someone replaces her, they'll play it out and see how long this thing is going to actually last. And in the course of 12 to 18 months, they'll gamble that the coalition will fall apart. Then obviously that will then end that government's regime and then the government session will end and they move on to another election. So really for Christy Clark and the B.C. Liberals, they just have to sort of play it out. But what she's doing is proper. She's not giving up. She's not resigning. She's going to test the confidence of the House. She knows full well in the back of her mind she's going to lose this thing. And when it happens, then you sort of play out the minority government or the governing coalition for, as I said, roughly the next 12 to 18 months. So that's where B.C. and the B.C. Liberals are going to be heading for the next little while. Uh, When the news broke of this coalition forming, one of the first topics to come out of it was Kinder Morgan, and they said they were going to do everything to stop it. The Prime Minister obviously has different plans. How does this affect Kinder Morgan? Well, you know, it's interesting. Not only does the Liberal Prime Minister have different plans, it should be known that the Alberta NDP Premier also has different plans. Rachel Notley is in favor of Kinder Morgan, 
and really has told the, the B.C. NDP and the B.C. Greens to sort of take a more realistic approach to this whole issue of the pipeline. I think what will probably happen is when John Horgan, who will become the new B.C. Premier fairly shortly, when he becomes Premier, based on the arrangement he has made with the B.C. Greens, which you can actually look online, they've posted it, I think he will then create a legal challenge or issue a legal challenge to Kinder Morgan, and he will either try to A, hold it up for as long as he possibly can, or B, try to kill it. Certainly, the, the BC NDP and the BC Greens are not in favor of Kinder Morgan. They want to get rid of this pipeline, but they're going to have a lot of opposition. And you're right, uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of this country, is in favor of it. He's obviously going to press for it. And because he has an ally like another NDP or like uh, Rachel Notley of Alberta, that actually gives him a huge advantage in terms of, one, trying to force the BC NDP to either drop their legal challenge if they issue it or get on side as quickly as possible, and if not, to try and figure out some sort of conditions that the BC NDP would be okay with as long as, again, their coalition partner, the BC Greens, are okay with it too. That's the difficulty of dealing with minority governments, especially working coalitions. Not only does the governing power party in power have to be in favor of something, the minority partner does too. But for Kinder Morgan, I would say that the future is quite iffy at this stage. And certainly, as I said, soon to be Premier Horgan will try to kill it. Uh, well, can the NDP and the Green do anything else but kill it? I mean, what sort of concessions can the government come up with to get these people on board? I mean, that just goes against everything that they stand for, doesn't it? It certainly does, but again, at the same time, it's better to have half a pie than nothing at all. So, I mean, I naturally, if, they, if that was the case, and I think that obviously the Trudeau Liberals know that there's going to be pretty heavy opposition from the new NDP slash Green Party government, I think they realize that they're going to have to do something to keep it alive. Because, again, it's, it's very simple, Scott. If a legal challenge is issued, that throws it into the court systems, and it could be, well, God knows how long until something is either decided or rectified. It could be months. It could be years. It just sort of depends how long it goes on for. Can they um, actually stop it or just delay it? Well, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, they can certainly delay it for quite a long period of time, Stopping it is another issue. Again, it depends how long the, it gets involved in court wrangling. If it goes on for years, it is possible that it could outlive the BC NDP Green Coalition. And then if the BC Liberals somehow get in the next time around, maybe they can bring it back. But certainly for, let's say, the next year to two years, I think it's going to be very, very hard for it to go through unless somehow they are able to rewrite this whole agreement, which I don't think they're going to do, or that somehow they bring the BC NDP and BC Greens on side, which I think is going to be very difficult when you look at, A, how left-leaning these two parties are, and B, how, how militantly opposed they are to the building of this pipeline. And again, I, I, you're right. I think it's sort of a, a difficult situation to be in. I don't think that Mr. Trudeau and his senior staffers are going to necessarily give up. I think they're going to try to either make concessions or smooth things over as best they can. But I, you're right. I don't quite know what will happen in this case. I'm not necessarily willing to say that it's dead right now because I think it can be held up for a long period of time. 
But at the same time, it's going to be very hard to see how this sort of pipeline, which is very important in terms of creating jobs and economic opportunities for Canadians, I just don't see how it's going to get built anytime soon. But I'm just not willing to say if at all, because, you know, forever is a long period of time and things can change. Uh, to say it's a bizarre time in politics may be an understatement here, Michael, but when True. you think about it, you know, Alberta, you know, who had been traditionally for 40-some-odd years conservative, now it swings far left to the NDP. Uh, a mountain range separates them and British Columbia, yep. where they've moved even farther left, and yet you have an NDP government in Alberta that wants a pi- pipeline, sees the advantages of it, that you have one across on the other side of the mountain range that doesn't. It's it's very bizarre. It is bizarre. Actually, it's even further in terms of right-leaning governments in Alberta, because you have to include the SoCreds as well, the Social Credit Party. You're looking at 70-plus years of right-leaning governments in Alberta, and we're now sitting with a fairly left-leaning NDP government, although, as I've said and you've said, the irony is that she actually is in favor of building the pipeline. Now, part of this, some people are suggesting, in this is being Rachel, Rachel Notley, the Premier of Alberta, some people are suggesting that's actually political because she wants to ensure her survival, and she knows that if she opposes everything that is either somewhat or quite popular in Alberta, her time in office is going to be very short. Or she's just sort of realizing that on a case-by-case issue, sometimes things make some sense. And the fact that an NDP government anywhere believes in a pipeline, when if you look at the federal NDP, it's, you know, it'd be difficult to find 20 people in a room who actually support it. I think that really actually does tell you something. But you're right. It is a bizarre period of time when you're looking at two NDP governments who are probably going to be the ones who are going to become the biggest players in terms of either being pro-pipeline or anti-pipeline. And I think that is actually quite bizarre. You're quite right. Um, I don't know if meetings between Rachel Notley and John Horgan, as well as Mr. Weaver, the, the Green Party, the Green Leader, I don't know if that will necessarily smooth things over to some degree. It would be wise if they all met and maybe tried to air their grievances and try to figure out if there is a strategy that makes sense, not just for their two provinces, but for the country in general. But you're or right. even the party as a whole across the country. Yeah, you see, I don't know how that's going to go. Like, unfortunately, they, they always say pundits know everything. Well, we don't. I don't know how NDPers are necessarily going to handle that. I can tell you of the new Democrats that I know, and I know several, many of them are opposed to pipelines as, as a matter of principle. Yeah. And they've actually been very frustrated with Ms. Notley and her support for Kinder Morgan. But at the same time, I think that other people also realize that whether you like the NDP or you hate the NDP, at least in Alberta, they're being realistic about, A, working with the federal government to ensure that the pipeline is built, and B, realizing that the pipeline can be beneficial to the entire country, even though obviously environmental conditions and other things here and there have to be taken into account. But the fact that two new democratic governments are going to fight it out for the survival yeah. of a pipeline, which is really part of or a principle of, I would say, the free market or capitalism, yeah. is quite shocking. Michael Tobe has been with us, columnist and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.